amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. This is an historic moment. High Terrell Fredson clears the chicane, lines up the last corner, and Jordan and High Terrell Fredson win, win, win in France. Magnificent. He had speed. He was smart. He learned alongside Schumacher. Heinz Harold Frentzen had everything a Formula One driver needs to get to the very top. Well, almost everything. I was blaming myself that I was not politically strong enough. I was afraid to open my mouth. I could not convince the people the directions which I would like to go. I found myself not being a complete racing driver not capable to get the people behind me. If I would have won the world championship, that would be a completely different life for me afterwards. Heinz Harald had the talent to be a world champion. He won races, but the big opportunities passed him by. The championship challenge that fell apart. The top team he might have driven for had he not upset the boss with a bad joke. The moment he was sacked halfway through a season. Heinz Harald's decade in Formula One was full of drama. Hello everyone, I'm Tom Clarkson and welcome to F1 Beyond the Grid. This week's guest is someone we've had so many requests for over the years. From 1994 to 2003, Heinz Harold Frentzen drove for five teams, Sauber, Williams, Jordan, Prost and Arrows. In 160 Grand Prix starts, he claimed three victories and 18 podiums. But his career was far more eventful than the stats suggest. Frentzen has an abundance of enthralling tales, and he's an excellent storyteller. Hot topics include his sacking by Eddie Jordan midway through the 2001 season, and how, to this day, he still doesn't understand why. He shares the joke that meant then-McLaren team principal Ron Dennis never spoke to him again, jeopardising any future switch to the team. He also talks about the friendship he forged with Michael Schumacher in the Mercedes Junior programme and how the seven-time world champion was just as competitive away from the racetrack. We discuss why he turned down a switch to the dominant Williams team after Ayrton Senna's death in 1994, where his 1999 title challenge went wrong, what it was like to work with Alain Prost, and much, much more. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Heinz Harold, it is great to see you again. How are you? Thank you very much, Tom. uh, It's a pleasure to see you again after so many years. Um, Back in Formula One, thank you for the tickets. Yes, you know why I'm here. (laughs) Yeah, I, I had to give my daughter the oldest one, the chance to see Formula One, and um, and I thought you might be helpful. Yeah. The racing <laughs> gene is strong in in, in the French and gene pool, isn't it? I don't think she has the perspective of racing. I think she has the perspective of um, the glamour, yeah, of Formula One. I mean, 
because I had, you know, I had so much distance to Formula One and motorsport for so many years. I had a chance today, to, arriving in Silverstone, to see it like a fan, you know, like a motorsport enthusiast. And I saw, actually, I thought it was Formula One, and I was really excited when I saw those cars, racing cars coming by, and I was really excited. And I said, Jesus Christ, this is, this is motorsport. And then I realized it was Formula Two, but it was as fascinating. And I'm so excited to see it, yeah. It's been really fun watching you walk through the paddock. How's it changed in the last 20 years? Well, <laughs> compared to my days, it looks everything much more developed, you know, like the motorhomes, they are so fascinating, beautiful, getting bigger each year or nicer each year. The trucks, they are so perfectly nicely built. It's the ongoing development, no? As well about the cars, you know, when you look at the cars 20 years ago and you look at the cars today, such a huge difference. Now, it's 20 years since you retired. In that time, have you stayed in touch with people in Formula One? Mm, very little, very little. Well, I, I saw Beat Sender from Sauber occasionally, by coincidence, somewhere in the world, yeah. And uh, I had a few times contact uh, apart I was bad, but not with many people. People know that, for example, um, Nick Heidfeld's uh, brother is married with my sister. But even though we don't really manage to get uh, very often together, so it's like being isolated. How do you reflect on your Formula One career? Well, first of all, I cannot complain. It could have been better, yes, but at the end of the day, I had a great time, and that's how I see it now. No, I was a bit sad when I stopped in 2003 because I wasn't happy how I finished, yeah, because I would have done something else at the end. But then after a while I said, listen, I just you escaped a bad accident in, uh, in Canada in 99. Be happy, you know, and take it what it is. Sam Michael came on this podcast a couple of months ago and he said that the two fastest drivers he worked with in his career were you and Lewis Hamilton. What do you say to that? <laughs> uh, yeah, very nice of him that he said that. Well, if he says that and he means it honestly, that's a great, uh, great honor. What can I say? I mean, it's his opinion. I, I don't really take it uh, too serious, you know. What were your greatest strengths as a driver? Well, this is part of, uh, of my experience in Formula One. So, for example, if I... I made a big jump in, le in, in a lesson in Formula One between 96 and 97 when I joined Williams. Because in, at Williams, I realized that being fast as a driver is not enough. I understood that the only way to be fast is to understand the car 100%. And I did not understand the Williams car, how it worked. For example, I... I I had switches and functions which I have never seen before, like, for example, the differential. So if you brake, you can have a switch on a steering wheel where you can increase the differential stiffness, so locking more up to 100% or less. Then you have a switch function to change in the apex of the corner, and then you have a, a progressive uh, function exiting the corner. And we end up in the season, the 1907 season, the end of the day with a brake system, which you had a switch on the steering wheel, 
when you turn, for example, on right-hand corners, high-speed right-hand corners, and you had a bit of understeer, so you press the right switch on the right-hand corner, you disconnected three brake calipers, you only had the brake caliper on the inside wheel, and you brake the car with the inside wheel. It's a, like a, a modern auto-control system in the car, you know, you, but you had to do it manually. You had tons of possibilities, yeah? That was really a, a, such a big impact for me to control all these possibilities to make this extra lap because if you don't have any switches or anything like that, you, you drive as fast as you can. But then you improve the car. And you had none of that at Sauber prior to... No, no I've never seen that before. I mean, it, it started with Williams that it had already um, an aero map, which was... Uh, from slow speed corners to high speed corners, identical. So you had the same balance in slow speed and high speed. So that was already a, a big difference. And when you turned the wheels, you had a lot more downforce uh, or no downforce loss. No, this car was way ahead of everything I have driven before. Just out of interest, was, was your teammate Jacques Villeneuve able to get his head around all of that? Yeah. The biggest problem for me was that Jack knew the car, knew all the tricks, and I had really never seen something like that. And what I realized is that when, when we first time uh, ran with low fuel, and that was in Melbourne, 97, all the days before, I never had a low fuel run with this William car. Yeah? And then we were talking. And then I was really surprised that uh, at the first race, he took me over one second. Yeah? I mean, I still finished second on the grid, but he took me away one second. And he started to work on the damping system. He used the dampers for balancing the car. He used all kind of things on the car I've never seen before. And I didn't understand how that works. So I was so behind the car. And before the season really started, I was so behind in the point system that I had to start to drive for him, yeah. And you failed to finish in the opening three races. Did that ramp up the pressure as well? Yeah, it was a bit difficult because um, you have to imagine Damon won the championship the year before and everybody was really shocked when I joined Williams and everybody asked why. And then having such a difficult uh, start of the, of the season, everybody was questioned. Frank also finding out that uh, Adrian Newey left the team because of uh, Frank's or Patrick's decisions to, to take me on board without letting him know. Hey, can I ask? Come on, it's been more than 20 years. When did you sign for Williams? Oh, I can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> the, the situation was that it was the wrong timing for me to join Williams. The pressure was very high and I could not... It's not the pressure I had which was a problem. It was simply that I didn't understand the car at all initially and by the time I was getting along with it the season had been halfway through and and uh, it was done basically yeah, for me. How was it working with Patrick Head with Frank Williams? Well Patrick was a, a little bit more let's say complicated yeah he he has an opinion and that's the opinion and we tried to convince him in a different direction, it was very difficult. Frank was more the guy who was quite thinking, observing, and making his decisions. Yeah? But Patrick was more involved in technology. And, for example, my first win in Imola in 97, he was, he was so upset. You, you think he would be happy, yes? Maybe he was at the end happy, but he was so upset with my strategy, which we talked before the race. We knew that Michael was going to be strong in, in Imola. 
I was going to try to stay as long as possible because at those days, Formula One pit stop was crucial for overtaking. Today is very easy with hybrid system and also the wing coming down. But those days we had to race, fight very hard to overtake. And Imola was impossible on a normal condition to overtake. Or the second chance is just in the pit to overtake. And that means to stay longer out. And that was always the trick, to be longer out than your competitor. And I told uh, Patrick that I'm going to use my um, trick in sports car racing, where it's impossible to overtake just in case, yeah, if I don't be in front on the start. And I would like to increase my laps. I could easily two laps increase with the fuel saving system I had. So I was saving between 10 and 15% of fuel. And Patrick was saying, no way, you're gonna, we want to see you racing. We want to see you on a track to give everything. That's racing. I don't want to see you saving fuel. And me and my race engineer, Tim Preston, at the time, we were just um, sticking our plan, doing it, and the crew and the team were following it. But Patrick had, didn't like it at all. The good thing is that it worked out because Michael came in just, I think, one or two laps earlier than me, and I saved like two laps extra. That's why I could have beat him in Imola. But Patrick was... Come on, what really did Patrick say after the race? Yeah, he was happy for me on one side, but he wasn't, he wasn't happy for the, the way how we did that, yeah. But what about for you, Heinz Harold? You know, it had been a long time coming. What was the overriding emotion as you stood on the top step at Imola? By this time, I just uh, translated the German version of that, you know, and I said, I said, oil on my soul. <laughs> Nobody, English press, uh, English speaking people understood that because it's a German saying, yeah. That's the moment where, where you basically are suffering because nobody expected you to win. And it was really disappointing. It was one of my hardest uh, seasons in my life at Williams. It was a bit of a relief when I did had the chance in, in Imola. Yeah. But having got the win, did you then expect the floodgates to open and, and were you expecting more wins thereafter? Well, I knew it, is, it was possible. My biggest challenge was to understand the car properly. Did Jacques help in any way? What kind of a <laughs> teammate was he? <laughs> no, he was quite happy to beat me. I mean, he was, well, we didn't have really a, a, a bad environment, you know. We were, we could anytime get together and drink a beer, but um, end of the day, also there was a story he was playing bad or games with me. Definitely not, because uh, I, I could see where where he was doing uh, or having his advantage. I mean, the combination Jacques Villeneuve and Jock Clear was an unbeatable combination because Jock Clear at the time, he, he knew everything about the car and all the tricks. And of course, he's working for Jacques and not for me. I did ask him sometimes a few questions and, and uh, yeah, he tried to help me as well on this occasion, but it was not like that that he would present it to you, yeah. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. 
So the 98 Williams isn't a good car. And at the end of that year, you're looking for another drive. What was the greatest thing you learnt in those two Williams years? The greatest thing is, uh, like I mentioned before, it's not only the speed that the driver have. The speed is not the point. The point is really to, to improve the car in areas where, where to gain lap times. For example, uh, you get out with the car, the Williams, for example, in 97, you think, fantastic car, this is a good lap. But the lap time is not good enough. What I understood is that in corners, it's important to have a better balance. And even if it's difficult to have a better balance in that corner, makes a big difference in the lap time. But in all the rest of the corners or the track, the balance is shit. But in the end, the lap time is faster. That counts in the end of the day, the lap time. yeah. And so that means that in three corners, I got the balance right. But in the rest, the rest of the track, the balance was really shit bad. I had to live with a terrible oversteer, for example, on entry and so on. But I managed to get this important three corners, which was necessary essentially for a good lap time. That was it. That so, was the trick. Although it was a bruising experience at Williams, you came away a better driver. Well, I came out as a much more thoughtful driver. I knew much more about the racing car because at Williams we were allowed to touch everything. Roll centers, anti-dive, anti-lift, uh, caster, brakes. You cannot imagine what toys we got on the car. It was most of those things were banned for 98. So the FIA came with this new rule book to say, we're going to get rid of all this complication technique issues. Yeah, we go back to the basics. And we were not able anymore to do any changes at the differentials. On, on the Is that line. one of the reasons why Williams went backwards in 98? As well, maybe as well, because then we had to go and focus more on mechanical items. But I think um, the main difference was uh, the aerodynamics. We did lose a bit of um, performance due to aerodynamics. Put us in your shoes then at the end of 98. What were you thinking? What were your options? It was a very hard time for me. You know? My entire Frensen driver market or market value was a bit lower. Yeah. Unfortunately, because although I had uh, a much better chance in 98 against Jack, uh, some qualify we, we more or less did the same qualifying uh, ratio. Yeah? But my market value was bad and there were not many teams interested in me. Only uh, Eddie contacted uh, us or me and my manager and uh, knew he could get me very cheap. Yeah, So... So, he, he would have loved that. <laughs> he, he, was, he, he was so happy. If he could save some money on, <laughs> on a good deal, Eddie is uh, the, the happiest man alive. But what he didn't know is that uh, if we made, uh, we made the deal like he wanted, so he gave me a very low base salary, but a lot of point money. And I don't know if he was happy about that, <laughs> finishing third in the championship. 54 points. Or... <laughs> Paying so much money, yes, <laughs> in the end of the season because uh, it would have been better off for him to give me a better high <laughs> price basic salary. But okay, at the end of the day, we were all happy. Eddie was happy with uh, with the first season, and I was really happy with uh, with the new circumstances in the team. You must have come out fighting in '99, feeling that you had something to prove. Yeah, I was extremely motivated. 
first of all, Sam Michael, who was my race engineer, and the people around us you know, working on the car, they were quite open to me. And coming from Williams, probably also were interested in, in the input I was able to give. And what I've learned at Williams was very helpful to, let's say, improve the car or get the maximum out of the car. Now, I can give you an example. We, we were talking about dampings on the car and I said ah. I said but I like to change damping no <laughs> I like to use damping settings for balancing the car especially in qualifying to play with the rebound and the bump force and so on and I don't really mind about uh, load fluctuation of course you can have much better load fluctuation on the tire if the damper is working perfect that's the main reason the damper is on the car but it doesn't really help if you have a bad balance. Better balance is on a car makes the lap times better than a bad load fluctuation in a damper. And they didn't believe me that. So I bet with them, with Sam, and I said, listen, we were in Barcelona testing. I said, take the dampers out. I said, no way, we can't do that. I said, take the damping out and have a go. And you'd say how much lap time we lose. And they were impossible, you can't do that. And, 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 and Trevor Foster shouldn't have known that, you know, because it's impossible to take damping out. So they did that, Sam did that for me. They said, oh, you can do it only one run. I said, that's enough, just to check. You know? Took the damping out, used the same tires on the lap we did on normal conditions. And what happened? I was only two to three tenths slower a lap than with damping. We had no damping at all on the car. And everybody was scratching their head. I said, shit, how is that possible? Yeah, you see, I said, the damping system is totally overvalued. Just changing the balance, I could prove them that the damping is overrated part of the car. And I guess you got the trust of all of the engineers when you proved your point. Correct, yeah. And with these little things, uh, I could then had a bigger window to prepare the car and get the best out of it. Because the Jordan 99 car was not really, especially on high downforce configuration, was pretty average. Yeah? We had a bit of an advantage if we, came, we were coming to low downforce circuits. The car was more efficient there. But we had also a big issue on the brake ducts on the front. If you use the standard brake ducts for heavy downforce configuration, we lost tremendous uh, amount of efficiency in the car. We used the small brake ducts. The car was nearly seven-tenths a lap quicker. It's something which was unbelievable surprising and for us limiting our possibilities. And that's why we ran in Canada, for example. We ran the smaller brake ducts. We were meant to run the standard brake ducts, but we took the risk. I also took the risk, of course. And is that why Why you that's had the why, crash? why we had the crash, yeah. So we had then the following races to make many compromises because of that. I think the decision to run the smaller brake ducts in Canada says a lot about the fighting spirit at Jordan because you'd finished second in the season opener in Melbourne. You had a sniff of the world championship and you were going for it. You were gunning for it and you were prepared to take risks. Yeah, that's right. I, I mean, once we got the momentum... We got really stronger and stronger mentally and, and the team really get better and better. On the other side, Damon was getting more frustrated. It's the same like the opposite situation with me and, and Jack, you know. 
No, when when us joining Williams, and we, if you get frustrated, you get under pressure. Yeah, you don't really function as normal as you, sh you would do being negative under pressure. Psychologically, it's very difficult. But if you have the up opposite uh, situation where you get a toe, <laughs> whatever you say, yeah, then you get faster, more confident. And then when you get more confident, things are happening much easier. Do you think in all your years of Formula One, in all of those 160 starts, was 99 your best season in terms of what you were doing behind the wheel? Yeah, I'm afraid I was knowing that 99, that uh, this may be the best season ever. Yeah, I have to say, um, somebody said to me that uh, if we would run the same point system like Formula One would run today, I would have been world champion with the current point system. I couldn't figure that out, but somebody sent me a message about that, that he calculated it. So, yeah, of course, I mean, if you view it that way, not only the performance we had, if I would have won the world championship, that would be a completely different life for me afterwards. Yeah. yeah. Well, so like that, I'm maximum the second position I achieved in Williams in 97 and not, not the world champion now. Well, maybe if the point system had been different, you'd have been world champion. But if you hadn't crashed in Canada? No, even with Canada crashes. Okay. Yeah. But also, Heinz Harold, if you hadn't had the problem at the European Grand Prix, I just want to set the scene for the listeners. You won in France. Brilliant victory. You won again at Monza. And the very next race was the European Grand Prix at the Nürburgring. Weather conditions weren't great, but you were completely dominating. And after your first pit stop, the car grinds to a halt. Fredson stops. He's lost the prop on turn three. That's his race run. And Eddie Jordan is gutted. And that is the end of Heinz Harold Fredson's chance of winning and getting 10 world championship points. Shock horror for everybody watching at home. What happened? Our anti-stall system came in and I didn't realize that. Yeah? It was basically an, an, a recommendation from the FEI. And generally we spoke about uh, if, for example, you have a, if you go off the circuit, yeah, you have a crash or you, you, you are on the circuit and having a spin, it's helpful, more helpful, that the engine keeps running. So the good thing about the anti-stall system was that if the RPMs of the engines goes low, then you get this security system getting in, so you have uh, just an automatic throttle function. And on the other side, that was helpful to make a start on low RPMs, yeah? because in Formula 1, you're just nailing the RPMs, the throttle down, and... and if you release the clutch, you have an incredible high speed difference between the engine and the gearbox and the tires. Yeah? So then you have a lot of speed difference in the clutch and it's very difficult to control the clutch. Either it slides for a moment and then gets stuck, yeah? gets sticky, and then bop, and then the engine dies. Yeah? Or you have too much wheel spin because you accelerate too fast yeah? or let this clutch slip, uh, not slip long enough. So that was, is always an issue in Formula One. 
imagine, yeah, if you run first gear, you could run up to 120, 130 kilometers in first gear. It's the same like you wouldn't use a normal car at the traffic light and you start at fourth gear. So you see the challenge, yeah. And the anti-stall system was there to help the engine not dying. So you could start with lower RPMs. The only problem was you never know when the anti-stall system is active or not. So at the pit stop, for example, normally you don't really uh, go so low with the, with the RPMs leaving the pits. Yeah? If that was the case, you have to press the clutch. That was the necessary function from the FIA to say, listen, uh, the anti-stall system has to go off the engine just in case, but it's reset it when you press the clutch. Yeah? So that's what happened to Damon. No, at the start, he came in in the anti-stall function and he didn't use the clutch for shifting up. That was the plan. And I missed it in the pit stop. How quickly did you know what the problem was? Oh, I knew immediately. I knew immediately that was the problem. And I was, I was so furious uh, about myself as well because we have a sign on the steering that you have to use the clutch. And normally, Sam would also come on the radio use the clutch to disengage uh, the anti-stall security system, yeah? And Even now, have, Heinz, I can yeah. see, just that memory is... <laughs> the end of the day, it wasn't worth it to use it, you know? Yeah, because I can um, see that memory is still painful. It's, uh, yeah, it is so painful because that would have made a huge difference. Well, do you <laughs> think that was the moment when that 99 championship slipped away? Uh, it, was, it was a big shock. Well, we were coming from a high, a very high to Nürburgring and with the result in Nürburgring we got, got out with a big low and it was difficult I mean after Nürburgring we went to uh, Malaysia and qualified 14th I think there yeah well because my my, my headrest came off I had to use a T-car everything went wrong in Malaysia as well I finished 6th in the race but um, we missed the opportunity to stay stay in the front and plus we were running high downforce levels. We were running the big brake ducks on the front. That was the worst race, basically, for us in, in the configuration that Jordan was. Yeah. So you finished the championship third. What did Eddie Jordan say? Because it was far and away the best season the team had had. Yeah, like I said before, he, he was on one side he was happy, but on the other side he wasn't so happy he had to pay so much money. Yeah. <laughs> Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Tell us a little bit more about EJ. I mean, what kind of a team boss was he? Did you rub along well together? Normally, yes. I mean, uh, in, in normal circumstances, we had uh, a very warm relationship. I mean, he was a very funny person most of the time, always full of uh, jokes. I was so impressed when we were going for sponsoring events and <laughs> was so impressed with the things he was telling. And he was a good salesman. No? 
it was a, a very good salesman. And I was so impressed. I said, I never could do this, what Eddie was doing. Yeah. And when things are going well with Eddie, the vibe is very positive. It's fun. But then in 2000 and 2001, the performance wasn't there. There was a lack of reliability. And Eddie ended up getting rid of you halfway through that 2001 season. What's the story there? Well, it, it started a little bit in 2000. In my second year with Jordan, I was facing the point that um, where they had to talk about, uh, uh, because my contract was going to expire. You know? Eddie and me, we knew that. There was a point that we had to talk clearly about it. But Eddie came very late with this moment. And then and he said, what is your terms? What do you want to do next year? And I said, listen, I would love to stay with the team. I got somebody who's interested, but if I have the same combination with, with Sam Michael, with my team that we work so good together, I would be happy to stay, yeah? We have to make sure that these combinations will be ready for me for next year. Yeah, yeah, everything we can do and arrange for you. So I was happy. So first thing when I signed, Sam said to me, oh, sorry, I'm not uh, for Jordan next year. And I was shocked. I was so upset with, with, with Eddie because uh, he promised me that Sam would stay. We had our first complicated situation there. I was really upset and, 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 and the team was really upset that I was upset here. So, oh, no, we're going to look for a good uh, race engineer and so on. I said, listen, listen, you know, very bad situation. Yeah? I was really disappointed uh, because uh, I was looking forward for my terms. So... What happened was that we got a new race engineer and Eddie John came with David Brown. And so we had our chat together and, and I was quite impressed from David. He was a really smart, experienced race engineer and, um, and somehow we get going, the situation. Yeah? But since then, Eddie and me, we had a bit of a difficulties. Are you implying that the relationship was never quite the same again after that disagreement? Yeah, yeah, it was not the same. And then we went to Melbourne and we started basically as good as we really started uh, or went through average 99. You know, finished fourth on the grid. The car was superb. It was the best uh, Jordan car ever driven. I was very happy. I mean, we had a little bit of a struggle in some areas, but... We were able, I think I was very motivated and optimistic that we could achieve that. Started well in Melbourne, no? qualifying four front of um, the Williams with the strong BMW engines. Had a good start, was I think second or something, no, or third, I don't know. Um, can't recall perfectly, but there the problem started. There was Barrichello coming up and making a very motivated move to overtake me, but at the end, he, he just pushed me off there. Yeah? Went to the back of the grid, but managed to finish six. So I was saying, okay, not too bad. We finished in the points, we made it. Something must have happened after that day in Melbourne. I don't know what happened, but since then, nothing was the same anymore. We arrived to, to Malaysia, and since then, I was really struggling. I don't know what happened. Everything was different. Even to this day, you have yeah. no explanation as I to have, where the performance went. I have no explanation. All of a sudden, it was like somebody pulling the plug. I had no more 
let's say, high moments. Yeah, I, I was struggling to beat uh, Jano. In fact, Jano was starting to get regularly faster than me. And, uh, well, I, I managed to be stronger in, uh, in some races than him in a race because Jano was a, was a guy who was really quick, but he also did like to have the best qualifying set. And he was very motivated to get the car f for a qualifying run. But I did take more care about the uh, race distance performance. I was running generally a softer diff, for example, yes. I was generally running the car more more for endurance, yeah. So that's where where Jano basically got me catched up in, in qualifying, at least. But anyway, after Melbourne, didn't get the qualifying right, get to manage somehow the, the, the race, but something was not running round anymore. And until that famous day after Magnicur, where Eddie then sacked me. You know? What reason did he give? Well, it was really no reason. It just out of the blue came up with, a, with this uh, letter with the lawyer and, and informed me. So that was a big shock. But it was a little bit anticipated because Eddie was getting strange, every time more strange each race towards uh, Magnicur. Yeah? Mm. And I didn't understand the world. I mean, I have no explanation. I don't know what Eddie would have to say that. But I, I listened to him of some of his comments about that, but uh, but I never understood what he really meant. Yeah. Did EJ ever explain to you why he chose Michael Schumacher to replace Bertrand Gachot at Spa in 1991, and not you? You were both members of the Mercedes Young Driver program at the time, and you'd even raced for EJ in Formula 3000 the previous year. Did you ever have that conversation with him? No, not at all. Because um, at that time I was running in Formula 3000 in Europe, but not that successful. So I wasn't really on, on, on the clock. And, and I left Mercedes the year before. In fact, it left Mercedes in 1990 because I said I would like to be a Formula One driver and I would like to concentrate in Formula 3000, sports car. Even I did go through all the lessons in sports car racing. Sports did cars was not my intention to do. But this is another story. Well, look, why don't we talk about the Mercedes Young Driver program now? What exactly did it do for you, Heinz Harold Frentzen? Well, Mercedes program was uh, created uh, from Jochen Erpasch and, and Peter Sauber. The intention which I realized those, I mean, you have to imagine those days, me, um, single-digit <laughs> intelligent quotient, we did not much experience, or I did not have much experience of sports, politics, yeah, and so on. But what I understood is that this program was introduced to us driver to help Mercedes join into motorsport. That was a very um, comprehensive work to bring back Mercedes into motorsport. And Mercedes was already doing sports car championship and very successful with, together with Sauber. Jochen Neerpasch did also the story with the junior team with BMW in touring cars. So he had this experience from that and that was very successful. So it was again very successful, this concept with Michael, John, uh, Karl Wendlinger and me to introduce the junior team. And there we did a lot of testing and Jochen Maas, Jean-Louis Schlesser and Mauro Baldi was really good guys to work with. Good teachers. Yes, good teachers. And for us, it was the first experience in fast cars. 
and giving the situation um, it was new also for me and that's where I learned to save fuel because in sports car you have a certain amount of, of fuel available for the race distance so you cannot run more fuel that means it's an automatic system for not running too much boost yeah for the turbocharger so that means you cannot run as much power as you want you have only as much power available you have in in fuel yeah so that the trick was at those days to be fast but not using so much fuel and that's where where i did my <laughs> necessary experience later in 97 yeah it won you yeah. the samarino grand prix we've covered that and that was also one of the tools we had in 99 because in 99 the jordan had the biggest fuel tank and also by saving fuel we could really extend our first stop so far in the last part of the distance of the race yeah the negative side was that my races were really um let's say uneventful because i was always holding up anybody and everybody then or after the race people were saying where did where did Franson come from no? we haven't seen much of him in racing in the race he was being overtaken by michael a few times by mika has overtaken him or, or david kutat yeah i was always being overtaken but i all of a sudden i was in front of them and finishing in front of them at the race so it was not spectacular stealth Yeah, you're a stealth driver. It was that was my my disadvantage. In that But year. as well as learning to save fuel, what were the sports cars like to drive? What else did you learn? Well, the speed. I mean, the speed. The we were taught uh, to be gentle with the car, to make precise gear changes, to um, save the tires and save fuel. Just handle the car with uh, with all feelings you have. And you'd been plucked out of Formula Three, so it was your first opportunity to work with a big manufacturer. Which I guess did that help you later on in your career in Formula One? It didn't seem to be that big when I was driving at Sauber, but very concentrated, and um, it was my first experience to to work with a top team. Yeah, with Sauber, no experienced team, and and the way of professionality working with daters and working with the engineers that was a big step of course from formula 3 and that was my first shot into the future how it would be like in 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 formula 1 one day yeah? you've already mentioned that it was yourself michael schumacher and carl wendlinger you were the the trio that mercedes wanted to do something with you weren't aware at the time that it maybe was formula 1 but Describe, first of all, the atmosphere between you three. What, were you friends or was the rivalry between you too intense to be friends? We had a socially very nice relationship, I have to say, because we were part of the team and we, we were not competing each other, maybe only in lap times. We were, of course, we tried to be better than the other ones, to beat the other ones, but in a nice way, you know, and we went always together in the same hotel and we did things together we went together for lunch dinner whatever when we had uh, free time we did many things together and exchanged information as well it was really um, a harmony situation i can recall it as one of my my nicest time in racing we really enjoyed it because we had the chance to drive the whole day with the sports car and and learn as much as the, we had as as a possibility Were your personalities very different? A bit, a bit, yeah. Because uh, Carl was very quiet, but sometimes funny. 
And Michael was really motivated, not only being fast on the track, but when we went out for playing billiard, I couldn't get any decent conversation with him because he was so focused on beating me and Carl that we couldn't make any jokes, you know. And I said one day, come on, Michael, just give it, give it a break. Just, just, just talk of something else instead of always competing each other, you know. Yeah, and he had his moment when he had a distance to his job or, or, or let's say, the competitiveness. Then he was a really funny bloke, yeah. I'm told that there was very little between you in terms of lap time. So where were you different? Well, it's hard to say. I mean, we, we had the situation that we were pushing each other all the time. So in case I was faster or set the fastest lap, so Michael was just doing everything. And the next run he had to beat that time. We had also to do long distance uh, tests, you know, like 20 laps in a row. So it was clear that everybody of us was on um, on a benchmark. Everybody looked at us. We had our teachers, Jochen Maas, Mauro Baldi, and Jean-Louis Schlesser, and we wanted to do better than them. Yes, that was our motivation. And we did everything. You know, we had a really... I think that was the idea, maybe, or let's say it, it was... The outcome was that we tried everything to beat each other, you know. And that's where we learned quite a lot. But just as young pups, and the atmosphere was always good. Yeah, of course. I mean, uh, in, in those days, you had fights on the track, beating each other or touching each other, but you never been upset after or before the race to each other. Uh, this is, race was always a different story. Was that helped because of the older drivers, the people like Jochen Maas, just keeping a lid on everything and, and almost telling you guys how to behave? Sort of, because... Um, it was so fantastic to sit together with these guys and they were telling the stories from their stories. You know, Jean-Louis Schlesser was a really funny bloke. He really told so many good stories. And we were listening there. We were sitting there, Michael, Carl and me, and just said nothing because either it was Jochen Maas telling his stories or Jean-Louis Schlesser. Mauro Bali was a bit more quiet. He also was listening to this both, but... Both Jean-Louis Schlesser and, and, and Jochen Maas was so funny to listen. That was entertainment for us. So when the three of you make it to Formula One at different times, Michael gets the leg up at Spa in 91, and then you and Carl get your different routes into Formula One as well. But when you're all there, how different was the relationship between you? Well, basically, we lost uh, more, more or less contact, yeah, because because we're running in different teams, you you just hardly get uh, any situation together. Maybe at a driver's briefing or driver's meeting or briefly, but you don't really get in touch as much as we had before. In that moment, when you when you are separated or driving against each other in different teams, there's basically you are isolated. It's, haven't got much chances to talk about, yeah. Well, of course, we can have a chat here and there, but um, but then we had, no, we had a competition. And when you got into Formula One in 1994, Michael Schumacher was already a race winner. Was he pleased for you that you'd made it? Oh, yeah, yeah. I remember he wanted to know everything when I did my first set at Sauber. In 93, Peter Sauber called me. I was racing in Japan and asked me, if I would like to do the test. And I said, of course, yeah. So I went to Mugello and did the test with Sauber, two days, I remember in summer. And Michael was 
I found out later, the guy said he was ringing all the time, calling Peter or calling a journalist. What is he doing? What's that? And this is that. He really was interested to know what, uh, what's happening because I think he was very happy that uh, finally I, I did make it as well, yeah. And are you surprised, knowing Michael how you did when he was younger, are you surprised at the amount of success he went on to have? Uh, I mean, after he did, uh, he was surprising everybody when he went to Jordan in Spa. No, he, he did such a cool impact yeah, in Formula One. And uh, shortly after at Benetton, when he was then immediately finishing in the, on the podium, it was giving all of us, you know, Carl and me, uh, a big push to know, listen. If he racing, can do that, so can I. Yeah, more or less, yeah. I said, listen, he's, uh, he's one of us, uh, when he, what he can do. It was really a big difference. And I think the biggest, uh, the biggest help Michael did for all of us, at the end helped me and, and Carl as well, and all other young people, is that Flavio Biritoro giving him a chance in Formula One at those days, experienced drivers was more valuable than young drivers. It was so difficult. Look at the age, you know, the, the guys in the 90s, in the 80s and the 90s, they were mostly experienced guys. The team bosses at those days, they didn't like to have young drivers that crash the car because it was very expensive and it was the habit to have experienced driver. So putting a young driver in, in a Formula One team was really like a big risk for the teams. And Michael opened the door for all the young drivers. Opened the door for me at the end because... Peter Sauber obviously saw, look, he saw what Michael did and I did and Karl Wendlinger did in, in Mercedes, Sauber Mercedes times. That's why also Peter then said, if Michael is doing such a good job, I have to call Frensen. And Frensen obviously did a very good job in that Mugello test in 93. And then you and Karl Wendlinger get the nod to race for Sauber in 94. How excited were you two to be teammates again? Oh, I was... It was really uh, like a family coming together. For me, it was, uh, uh, how can I explain it? It was the nicest thing on earth for me to be in Formula One. I never really thought I would eventually make it, yeah? And I was so happy. I was so happy to be in Formula One. You can't imagine. Uh, I was, and also with Carl and with Sauber. And Sauber was really, it was very difficult not to love Peter Sauber. Even he was a quite respectful person, but he was a very warm personality. So I felt really nice, welcomed at Sauber. I had the feeling, at least. Your dad raced cars, but did you feel that Peter Sauber was like your racing dad? More or less, yes. Quite a paternal he, relationship. I could feel that he was giving a lot of confidence to us drivers. You know, he, he treated us very respectful and giving us the confidence that we can, yeah, we can go for it. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Heinz, that 94 season was a tumultuous season for Formula One. And for a young guy like you, 
We go to race three. Roland Ratzenberger loses his life on the Saturday. Ayrton Senna loses his life on the Sunday. We then go to Monaco, and Carl has a bad accident there. Just tell us where you were mentally at that point. I was very down. I mean, like I mentioned before, I was so mentally high, pumped up and happy. You know? The first races, driving for Sauber and so on. And then all of a sudden, in Imola, this shock, you know, this, this, it was such a shock. It was unbelievable. You thought it, you were in a different world. You're coming from a high and all of a sudden you are absolutely in a, in a completely low. And then you question yourself, is it really necessary, the sport we are doing and taking so much risk? How did you I, justify it in your mind? Well, I, I went, I packed my stuff and went to Willy Dangle in Austria myself to sort that out. Yeah, I, I didn't want to go home. I wanted to go to, to Willy Dangle, sit there myself and think about what to do. And at the end of the day, I said, listen, this is what I liked. This is what I love. And it's in the end of the day, when is your time, it's your time. But you cannot, for that experience, give up all your dreams you had built up before. This is a risky job and we have to do it, yeah. Now, Peter Sauber has gone on record as saying that you are the most important driver in his team's history. And I wanted to ask you why you think that is the case. What did you contribute to Sauber? And was it the way you picked up the team after Carl's accident at Monaco in 94? Well, I think partly has to do with, uh, with the situation at Sauber in 94. Sauber became under pressure uh, with the results, yeah, in 94, because I think Norbert Hauk got involved and there was rumors that uh, Mercedes might go somewhere else, yeah. And I have to tell you that story because it is quite special regarding to my career because what happened was after the... What happened in Imola after Ayrton Senna died? I got a call from Frank on saying, asking me to come to Williams in 94. That was just before the race weekend started, no? before Thursday, no? when we had uh, the practice. I, I was meeting Frank and uh, Frank was asking if, if I would join Williams in no? 94. And imagine that was only three, three races into the season. And I was so happy that I was going to Sauber and staying with Sauber. I didn't know anything about the politics around and so on, what's going on. But at the end of the day, I was so happy being a Sauber. And I said to Frank, Frank, I cannot leave the team. I, I had such a difficulty in times, you know, to get into Sauber. And Sauber did everything to convince Mercedes that I would be the right guy because Mercedes had their doubts that I would be the right guy. Imagine they contract me at Sauber only if I would have a trainer all the time with me. And the trainer was called Karl Fresner. He was a ski national trainer. And his nickname was the Iron Carl. Can you imagine? He's a hard man. What a hard man I had all, all the time with me because uh, I got only the drive at Mercedes because I had somebody around me to kick the ass from early morning to the evening. And Peter was doing everything that I get the job in Formula One. So I said to Frank, Frank, I... I'm so grateful that I got the chance that uh, Sauber gave me the chance in Formula One. I cannot do it. I cannot 
just leave the team after three races or four races and join you. I cannot break my contract. How hard was that for you to say that, to turn down what was the most dominant team in Formula One at the time? Boy, I, I, it, was, it was very hard. I looked in the mirror and I said, can I do that? Because for me, it was impossible to, to slack somebody in the face, to Peter, to give me so much trust and confidence and, and what else he did. It was not possible. I said to Frank, it's not possible. I cannot do that. Did you tell Peter about this offer from Williams? Oh, he, he got to know that. Somebody told him later. Because uh, after that, uh, that season, Peter gave me, after the 94 season, and it was clear that Mercedes was leaving to McLaren, he gave me as a present this, uh, this, this from my Formula One car, my first one, as a gift and as, as, as a thank you. And... Um, my mission was clear. I was staying with Sauber no matter what. Even without Mercedes, I was sticking with them. And then we had this very difficult year in, in 95, where we were basically nowhere in the start of the season, where we had the Ford engines, but the car was so terrible. And we weren't able to be in the top 10. But we managed eventually, with hard work, and, and the team did really a big effort. We managed to get the first podium in, in Monza in 95 and towards the end of the season be regularly in the points. And that is the point I wanted to say. You know why I never got a chance at McLaren? In 94 in Adelaide, my manager, Audrey Potlash, came to me. It was the celebration, uh, Sunday race, uh, all Formula One teams were celebrating end of season. And then I had a call, uh, Ron Dennis wanted to see me. At those days, I was a person who made a lot of fun. I had I come from Mönchengladbach, and, and these guys from Mönchengladbach, they are always doing jokes and funny. think they, are, they have a lot of sense of humor, yes. So Ron Dennis came to me and I said, hey, Heinz, how is your English? And I was talking a bit. Oh, I said, uh, there might be some improvement yeah, in your English. No? And then I said, for fun, and how is your German? because we knew that Mercedes was coming to, to McLaren. You have to learn German as well, I said to, to Ron Dennis. He had a stone face. I was thinking I was funny. And my manager just pushed my arm and then like, what the fuck did you say now? <laughs> and I saw the face of Ron Dennis and he never ever spoke again with me. He was so upset that I made this joke. <laughs> Unbelievable. And that's why I never really had a, a chance at McLaren, yeah? Because Ron Dennis, for some reason, didn't like my sense of humour. Whereas Peter Sauber clearly did. And going back to this quote from Peter in which he says, you're the team's most important driver. There was 94, and then you touched on that first podium. It was your first podium at Monza in 95. It was the team's first podium. What did Peter say to you after that? Oh, I can't recall. He just, what he does, and you know what he does, this is taking out his cigar and then, yes, enjoying the cigar. That, that was the indication that he was happy. <laughs> Do you think you were happiest when you were racing for Sauber? Well, more or less. I felt that, uh, that I was welcomed in the team and I got uh, a lot of uh, support. You know, I liked the food. <laughs> I liked the people. I liked Swiss people. And, um, yeah, I really enjoyed the time with Sauber. Yeah. We had a few occasions where it was a bit, bit tough, but at the end of the day, 
you need to have also tough situations, you know. It cannot be so easy for racing drivers to, to have sunshine all the time, you know, because it's better that you get pushed by someone. And they were looking hardly for, for a driver who could push me, yeah, because it was, everything was running for me so easy. Well, obviously, Carl had this problem with the crash, and after the crash, it was not the same. I felt very sorry for Carl that he couldn't. He had to come back at the end of uh, in '95 again, yes, but he couldn't do it because he got so much headache when he was running a car physically and so on. I I've, I was really sad for Carl because we we raced so many years together in Formula Three. He was my my main competitor in the Formula Three season. He won the championship in 1989, and he was very strong those days. But after the crash, he was never the same. So it was. A lovely moment when the two of you went and did Le Mans, long time after you retired from Formula One. Oh, yes. That was a, a fun reunion, as you said. It felt like home, no? Something like home that we raced together. It, felt, it was funny to, um, to be together again, yeah. So when Frank came knocking a second time for you to go and join the team in 1997, what did Peter Sauber say when you said, I have this opportunity? Did he try hard to keep hold of you? I'm not so sure. I think, I think he knew more or less because we're starting to talk each other, and we never really finished uh, the start of the conversation. So basically, he knew that's going to be probably um, a different time coming. Yeah. So if we fast forward to life after Jordan, you bounce from Prost to Arrows. You then end your career with Sauber in. 2003 and get that get that wonderful podium in your penultimate race but Prost and Sauber were both on their last legs did you see many similarities between the two teams more or less I mean reviewing all the years you sometimes you realize that little details makes a big difference yeah when Eddie sacked me, I was really motivated to kick asses to the Jordan team and go to to Prost because Alesi obviously was happy to leave Prost to go to Jordan because he was complaining about the car. And I was shocked when I joined the Prost car that the car was, had a good performance on one side, but it had a, a fundamental problem. First, the steering wheel was so heavy in the corners. And secondly, as soon as you turn the wheels in the corners, it created a massive understeer. And because I was so motivated, I tried everything to get the maximum out of the car. I had a nice guy who was a race engineer at that time for, for the Prosca. And we looked at the data and we couldn't find the problem. We figured out it's not an aerodynamic issue. It must have been something else, but it was like a, a secret treasury you know, in the, on an island to find the, 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 to find the problem. But we couldn't find it. And I was so disappointed. I managed to get a, a highlight in, in Spa with position three and four in qualifying. But as soon as the car was racing, it was very difficult to drive. And honestly, I spent so much energy to analyzing the problem. It was such a challenge. And I, I, I did give everything, but I knew the situation was Alan was because he was under pressure. I knew that this might be his last year. And if, if there's no soon more good results, then he will be um, giving up his dream, running the team. I started to get Alan to know in that short time I was racing with Prost, yeah, with his team. 
felt so sorry. I mean, we were both in a similar situation. I was just sacked and I had to start again. And he was in a situation that he couldn't find a way out. Yes. And he couldn't find the situation. I was so, ho I was so happy that I could uh, eventually race for him the next year because I liked him so much. Was he someone who you'd always looked up to as a driver? You just missed each other. He retired at the end of nineteen. Well, I, I was in favor of Ayrton always because I was, since a young kid, I was a fan of Ayrton. But when I got to know Alan Pross, I found out that he's a really nice guy too, yeah? Did you ever tell Alan that you were an Ayrton fan? Not really. <laughs> I, I, I was a bit upset sometimes because I was on, on Ayrton's uh, side, you know, that uh, he was doing games. But at the end of the day, they are racing drivers, yeah, and they do all kind of tricks they have. Yeah, it was a personality. I, I really admired Alan and the way he talked and the way he thought. And I was giving everything because also I wanted to beat Eddie in this bloody yellow cars, yes. <laughs> I wanted to be there desperately and I was so motivated and looked everything in the car, every single screw. I was spending hours in the factories going through the data and finding the mistakes, but we couldn't find it. And then I was also very disappointed that uh, after that I had only the option to run with, with uh, Tom Walking Show in Arrows. Yeah? But again, that Arrows A23 of 2002 wasn't a bad car. Yes, but I started with arrows testing the car and I got exactly the same problem but only on the rear axle. It was a, the car had fantastic uh, results in downforce. Really good downforce level. Aerodynamic was fantastic and the car was really had great potential but as soon you hit the throttle the car was oversteering like hell. And that's where I start to investigate more in suspension in the geometric of suspension. And I said, listen, it's a similar problem as Prost. And I spent so much time. And about April, May, after we had two, three races done, I found the reason what it was. And I found the reason why the Prost was not working. And the reason was, for example, it's a combination of how you have the suspension, not necessarily the roll centers, but uh, where the upright is mounted to the suspension. And the pros had the problem that they had the steering arm going to the middle of the uprights here. Normally, you put the steering rock on top or on the bottom sometimes. But on the middle, very few situations I've seen cars who did that. And I remember the 2000 Jordan had that as well. And they realized that was a big mistake and had similar characteristic problems like the pros. The moment where the car starts to roll, the steering arms are... Um, holding the force or stopping the car rolling. So it works like a very stiff anti-roll bar. And the more the car rolls in a corner, the stiffer it gets like a, like a progressive anti-roll bar. And the same problem the arrows had on the rear axle. I figured it out and I said to them, listen, the, 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 the steering arm was at the middle on the upright. And I said, take the bloody steering arm off there. Because we had the steering arm, they used it in the middle to extend the rear floor to get more downforce. And I said, this bloody steering arm is acting as an active anti-roll bar. Take this off. No, no, we cannot do that. Impossible, because your suspension will fall apart. I said, no, please. And we were trying in, in Le Castellet. And I said, come on, let's put it off. It's only two screws each side. No? And he said, no. I said, come on. I convinced Tom Walking Show, I convinced everybody, let's do it, come on. I would drive for free next race if you do that, you know. And then 
he did it for one run and the car was completely different. The car was one and a half seconds faster. How interesting. I feel that story is so similar to the one when you were playing with the dampers at Jordan with yeah. Sam Michael. Yeah, exactly. And, um, and I said, listen, when we had to go to Monaco. I said, listen, you have to take this off for Monaco. And then we will blow them all away. And they were like, shitting themselves in the pants because nobody of the engineers had the balls to take this steering arm out because it was not calculated. It was missing one piece in the calculation and it wouldn't last, they said. He said, you're gonna crash, you're gonna kill yourself, you know? And what we did, we did a compromise. So they did another steering arm additionally, so they increased the force and decreased the force of that middle arm and prompt in Monaco, we did really run straight in the points. It was in the fun. points, yeah. And I said, "Damn it! If we could have fixed that problem at Prost, Prost would have been still in Formula One." And I asked Henri Durand, I said, "How come that one guy builds the rear suspension because it came from Ferrari, yes, and one guy builds the front of the car? You know, why you don't make it together?" I said, "That's the way it was. It was probably cheaper for Alan to do that combination, but at the end of the day." It killed the performance of the car for such a silly problem because everything else was running well. The engines was running well. The downforce was running well, even in the Prost. But mechanically, it was a disaster. It was a, a, a built-in mechanical disaster. Amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen. Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups. It's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Heinz Harold, it's been really interesting to talk to you because I feel on many occasions in our chat, I feel like I've been having a technical debrief with you and you clearly loved the technical side of the sport. Yeah, and that's why I, I stopped after Sauber in 2003. When I come back or came back to, to Sauber, which I was grateful and happy, I found a car which has a very small window for, for driver's input. Really, Ram said to me, you cannot touch anymore any construction side of the car. The only thing you can touch is the anti-roll bar, the stiffness of the diff, or the front wing, or the rear wing, yeah? But you cannot touch caster, roll centers, anti-dive, anti-lift, you cannot touch the dampers. Why not? Because he didn't want to do that. He said, it's not the job of the driver to make this input. And I, and I tried to explain Willie. I said, Willie, I've gone through all these discussions. Believe me, trust me, we can make the car much better than it is. He said, no way, you're going to touch one single crew on this car. <laughs> he just, at the end of the day, he showed me the way to go. Either I go home or accept the terms. And that's where I completely lost the motivation. He didn't want to know all the experience I had in the past with the teams like, bloody fuck the dampers, you know, just give, throw him out if, you, if necessary, but, but do something. When did you make that decision to leave Formula One? Was it before 
you got that podium uh, at the penultimate yeah. race. Yeah, that was before because uh, I said, listen, that's going to be my last year. I mean, Eddie came into Suka 2003 and tried to convince me to do another year with Eddie Jordan. How long was that conversation? Very short, because for me, that I couldn't do it. I, I just, I, today we would call burnout syndrome. At those days, it didn't exist, that word. I was absolutely finished, and I was already looking forward to do DTM, because I thought DTM might be a different story, and just pulley racing, making some money, and, and having fun. That was my idea. I didn't want to, to start again from zero. Yeah? What aspect of Formula One exhausted you? Was it the travel? Was it the pressure? Was it the constant need to think about how to improve the car? Was it... No, nothing that. I loved all the, the challenges. But at the end, what I felt at Sauber in my last year, that I was basically overpaid. Because me, I was capable to get a lot more out of the car because I knew the difficulties of the Sauber car. I knew there was something wrong. If you, if you make a few changes to the car, the car would go one second quicker. I knew that. But every other driver could do the same job as me. Nick was beating me occasionally. Nick Heidfeld. Yeah, because that was the best example. If you, if you can't touch anything on the car, if you have similar cars, there's not much difference you have yeah, in the settings you can do to do from the intelligent point of the driver to make this, this forward steps to increase the car's performance. I wasn't able to do that. I wasn't, I wasn't allowed to do, to touch any screw which was necessary to touch. I, I understand your argument, but still, Heinz Harold, I've never heard a racing driver ever say they were overpaid. <laughs> <laughs> I felt so, because I, w I was coming to, uh, to the race weekend just being paid for driving and not starting the brain, you know, not using the brain. So they only, the, I was only allowed to use the brain to, to keep my foot down <laughs> and so nothing else. When, when you walked away from Formula One and you'd had a bit of time to rest and you were, as you say, in the DTM, what did you miss about Formula One? The competition. And basically what I've learned in DTM is a completely different story. You are, you are a team with not only your teammate, the whole manufacturer, Drivers. So you are it's Audi. We had I had ten teammates, yeah, ten drivers, and after the first race, it was decided who's going to win the championship. So we had to race to help him to win the championship. So I thought, Jesus Christ, where did you end up here? You know, I love more the selfish type of racing driver that you race for yourself and uh, give a shit about the other drivers because it's your race, you know? And all of a sudden I found myself in a DTM. It's like football, you know? And I thought this DTM racing is like a soccer game, you know? <laughs> it's like... The, it's quite a good analogy, actually. Yeah, you've got so many teammates. Yeah. yeah, and you have to play differently. You have to play uh, like a soccer game. Yeah. I just want to throw your stats at you now. So 10 years in Formula One... 160 starts, three wins, two poles. Do you think you achieved what a guy of your natural ability and technical bent deserved? Oh, it's hard to say. This you cannot answer because there's so many things in life you can say doesn't deserve it. Some people deserve it or not. This question is very difficult. When I finished 2003, I wasn't happy like I finished because... I thought I could have done more, achieved more. I was blaming myself that I was not politically strong enough 
like dealing the situation with Eddie when he kicked me out. Open more the mouth because since I had this event with, with Ron Dennis, you know, <laughs> in Adelaide 94, I was afraid to open my mouth because clearly I closed my door at McLaren, yes. And I thought, I realized, shit, I cannot, I, I, I cannot talk too much. It's better to keep quiet like Kimi Raikkonen and don't tell too much to not getting in troubles. And I didn't start to get uh, political either. So that's not also my, my type of character. I loved more the technology, but I could not convince the people the directions which I would like to go. No, like what I have learned at Williams, I would have learned at Prost, or at best example, my last uh, race here at Sauber, I could not convince Willy Rumpf a different approach to racing. And I blame it myself. There I, I found myself not being a complete racing driver, not capable to, to get the people behind me, to convince them. I think you're being very harsh on yourself. I am, yes, but that's, that's what you are as a racing driver. You know? you know, you have the codex as a racing driver. We learn quite quickly. You never blame the team for, or somebody else for your poor performance or whatever mistakes you do and so on. No? You never blame anybody else but you if it's better to shut, <laughs> shut your mouth yes, and not saying the truth but not blaming everybody else. So you don't go there and, 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 and blame the team yeah, as a driver. You can't do that. It's a codex. And that means also you are always very um, harsh to yourself. Just a few things I've learned during our chat have made me think of a couple of questions, which is at Williams, for example, and this is no slight on Tim Preston, your race engineer, but... Had you had someone like Sam Michael working with you at Williams, do you think the bond that you had with Sam and his technical understanding alongside yours could have led to a different result? No, what, what I needed at Williams would have been somebody who knew the car perfectly and be able to teach me. Because when I joined Jordan, I was a completely different racing driver than when I back joined Williams. So I came with all a loaded package or, or full of, of information to Jordan. And I could give a lot of information to Sam. So how I did work and, and, and I had a completely different approach of, about running my car. Yeah? So the difference was only that. So Sam wouldn't necessarily would help me. Maybe Jock Clear would have been the right person for me to at Williams because he knew this bastard, he knew all the tricks, yeah? He knew what to touch, but he didn't tell me, of course not, because he was working for Jack. Heinz, after you retired from all forms of racing, uh, what did you do to replace the adrenaline rush of being a racing driver? Very hard to say. I did a few occasions, I did some racing DT3, and, um, and I found myself in danger, because the moment I'm sitting in the car, the moment... I start the engine, I'm back in this situation where I'm 100% focused and I, and I shut up everything uh, what's around me. And it's only me, the car and the racetrack. And that it was for me a, a perfect situation for disconnect. And now, you know where I find this? Since a year, I'm doing motorbiking. And generally, you have to be, have a lot of respect for motorbiking. But when I go on a motorbike and cruise around, I have the same sense there. Yeah, to be shutting up or let's say um, disconnect from the world for all the 
things you are carrying on, all the baggage you have behind you, and disconnect. And that is, is a similar feeling I had in racing, you know. How serious are you about motorbikes? I mean, are you doing track days or are you talking about just cruising around on the open road? No, no, I'm not doing racing. No, I'm just doing cruising around, cruises, and that, uh, that helps me to, um, to relax, yeah. Heinz Harold, enjoy the biking. Thank you very much for your time. It's been so good to catch up. Thanks, Tom, for, <laughs> for giving me a chance to talk about the past. I hope I'm doing it for a lot of people who followed racing and wanted to know stories behind it since I'm back thinking about motorsport because I'm completely disconnected now for several years. I know how it is like if you are a motorsport fan. So I hope I can give people some information they wanted. You've certainly given us what we wanted, Heinz Harold. So many stories. And I feel we understand your career better, having heard it from the horse's mouth. The challenges presented by the Williams car in 1997 are one case in point. The EJ stories were priceless as ever. And I loved your insight into the Mercedes Junior programme. Thanks for your time, Heinz Harold. It was great to catch up. And I'll see you at a racetrack again soon, because I know your daughter, Leia, wants to come to more races. Now, listeners, please tell me your thoughts and stories about Heinz Harold. Do you think he deserved more success in Formula One? Which was his best season? Let me know through all the usual means. I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter or use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. And I'll read out some of your messages at the end of next week's show. Which brings me on to what you sent in about Herbie Blash after our last episode at the start of the summer break. As I said then... Herbie is a living legend, and that fact wasn't lost on anyone. Let's start with this from Trevor Thompson. Herbie was one of the key members of the team I followed in the 80s. Brabham, innovative, edgy, and faster than most. I bet he has so many more stories to tell. Great stuff, Tom. Get him back for Herbie Part 2. Thank you. Well, thanks for the note, Trevor. And I'm sure you're right. There must be plenty more stories to come from Herbie. And what about this from R, the mysterious R? I really enjoyed this episode. I've been following Formula One for about four decades, but I didn't recognise Herbie's name. I listened to the podcast anyway, and boy, what a treasure of an experience. Nice one. That's what we like to hear. Messages like that mean a lot. Thank you very much for sending it in. And here's another one from Matt Alford. So interesting to hear these guys with all this experience. I love to hear all the amazing stories of how Formula One was back in the day. Herbie being central to Grand Prix racing in the days I started following Formula One. Great podcast. Thanks, Matt. Glad you enjoyed it. And finally, what about this from Laura? I've just finished listening and I really enjoyed it. I kept being thrown by how similar Herbie and Damon Hill sound. Now that's a good spot, Laura. And funnily enough, you're not the only person to have said it. I will tell them when I next see them. I think they're coming to Monza. Well, thanks to everyone who wrote in. We love your messages. And I'm sorry if I haven't had time to read out your message here. That's pretty much it for this week. My final thought, please check out this week's F1 Nation with me, Damon Hill and Pedro De La Rosa. The 2023 season continues this weekend in Zandvoort following the summer break and we preview what to look forward to. But thanks for listening and I'll catch you all again next week when I'll be back with another great guest from the world of Formula One. Beyond the Grid is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. Until next time, keep it flat out. 
amplify your career through training and development solutions specifically designed for federal government professionals. From courses to help you attain or retain certification, to individualized coaching services, to programs that hone your leadership skills and business acumen, Management Concepts optimizes your professional development. Online, in person, individually, or groups, it's training that's measurably better. Learn more at managementconcepts.com. That's managementconcepts.com. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly Auto Parts. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply.